Chapter Six of Plain Tales from the Hills. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. Plain Tales from the Hills by Rudyard Kipling. Chapter Six. False Dawn. Tonight, God knows what things shall tide. The earth is racked and faint, expectant, sleepless, open-eyed and we who from the earth were made thrill with our mother's pain from endurance no man will know the exact truth of this story though women may sometimes whisper it to one another after a dance when they are putting up their hair for the night and comparing lists of victims a man of course cannot assist at these functions so the tale must be told from the outside in the dark all wrong never praise a sister to a sister in the hope of your compliments reaching the proper ears and so preparing the way for you later on Sisters are women first, and sisters afterwards, and you will find that you do yourself harm. Summers knew this when he made up his mind to propose to the elder, Miss Copley. Summers was a strange man, with few merits, so far as men could see, though he was popular with women, and carried enough conceit to stock a viceroy's council, and leave a little over for the commander-in-chief's staff. He was a civilian. Very many women took an interest in Summers, perhaps because his manner to them was offensive, if you hit a pony over the nose at the outset of your acquaintance, he may not love you, but he will take a deep interest in your movements ever afterwards. The elder Miss Copley was nice, plump, winning, and pretty. The younger was not so pretty, and, from men disregarding the hints set forth above, her style was repellent and unattractive. Both girls had practically the same figure, and there was a strong likeness between them in look and voice, though no one could doubt for an instant which was the nicer of the two. Somerez made up his mind, as soon as they came into the station from Behar, to marry the elder one. At least we all made sure that he would, which comes to the same thing, for she was two-and-twenty, and he was thirty-three, with pay and allowances of nearly fourteen hundred rupees a month. So the match, as we arranged it, was in every way a good one. Somerez was his name, and summary was his nature, as a man once said. Having drafted his resolution, he formed a select committee of one to sit upon it, and resolved to take his time. In our unpleasant slang, the Copley girls hunted in couples. That is to say, you could do nothing with one without the other. They were very loving sisters, but their mutual affection was sometimes inconvenient. Somerez held a balance hair true between them, and none but himself could have said to which side his heart inclined, though every one guessed. He rode with them a good deal and danced with them, but he never succeeded in detaching them from each other for any length of time. Women said that the two girls kept together through deep mistrust, each fearing that the other would steal a march on her, but that has nothing to do with a man. Somerez was silent for good or bad, and, as business, likely attentive as he could be, having due regard to his work and, of course, to his polo. Beyond doubt, both girls were fond of him. As the hot weather drew nearer and Somerez made no sign, women said that you could see their trouble in the eyes of the girls, that they were looking strained, anxious, and irritable. Men are quite blind in these matters unless they have more of the woman than the man in their composition, in which case it does not matter what they say or think. I maintain it was the hot April days that took the color out of the Copley girls' cheeks. They should have been sent to the hills early. No one, man or woman, feels an angel when the hot weather is approaching. The younger sister grew more cynical, not to say acid, in her ways, and the winningness of the elder wore thin. There was more effort in it. Now, the station wherein all these things happened was— though not a little one, off the line of rail, and suffered through want of attention. There were no gardens or bands or amusements worth speaking of, 
and it was nearly a day's journey to come into Lahore for a dance. People were grateful for small things to interest them. About the beginning of May, and just before the final exodus of hill-goers, when the weather was very hot and there were not more than twenty people in the station, Somarez gave a moonlight riding picnic at an old tomb six miles away, near the bed of the river. It was a Noah's Ark picnic, and there was to be the usual arrangement of quarter-mile intervals between each couple, on account of the dust. Six couples came altogether, including chaperones. Moonlight picnics are useful just at the very end of the season, before all the girls go away to the hills. They lead to understandings and should be encouraged by chaperones, especially those whose girls look Swedish in riding habits. I knew a case once, but that's another story. That picnic was called the Great Pop Picnic, because everyone knew Somerez would propose then to the eldest Miss Copley, and besides his affair there was another which might possibly come to happiness. The social atmosphere was heavily charged, and wanted clearing. We met at the parade ground at ten. The night was fearfully hot. The horses sweated even at walking pace, but anything was better than sitting still in our own dark houses. When we moved off under the full moon we were four couples, one triplet, and Mr. Somerez riding with the Copley girls, and I loitered at the tail of the procession, wondering with whom Somerez would ride home. Everyone was happy and contented, but we all felt that things were going to happen. We rode slowly, and it was nearly midnight before we reached the old tomb, facing the ruined tank and the decayed gardens where we were going to eat and drink. I was late in coming up, and before I went into the garden I saw that the horizon to the north carried a faint, dun-colored feather, but no one would have thanked me for spoiling so well-managed an entertainment as this picnic, and a dust-storm more or less does no great harm. We gathered by the tank. Someone had brought out a banjo, which is a most sentimental instrument, and three or four of us sang. You, you must not laugh at this. Our amusements in out-of-the-way stations are very few indeed. When we talked in groups or together lying under the trees, with the sun-baked roses dropping their petals at our feet, until supper was ready, it was a beautiful supper, as cold and as iced as you could wish, and we stayed long over it. I had felt that the air was growing hotter and hotter, but nobody seemed to notice it until the moon went out, and a burning hot wind began lashing the orange trees with a sound like the noise of the sea. Before we knew where we were, the dust storm was on us, and everything was roaring, whirling darkness. The supper-table was blown bodily into the tank. We were afraid of staying anywhere near the old tomb for fear it might be blown down. So we felt our way to the orange trees where the horses were picketed, and waited for the storm to blow over. Then the little light that was left vanished, and you could not see your hand before your face. The air was heavy with dust and sand from the bed of the river, that filled boots and pockets and drifted down necks and coated eyebrows and moustaches. It was one of the worst dust-storms of the year. We were all huddled together close to the trembling horses, with the thunder clattering overhead and the lightning spurting like water from a sluice all ways at once. There was no danger, of course, unless the horses broke loose. I was standing with my head downward and with my hands over my mouth, hearing the tr trees thrashing each other. I could not see who was next to me till the flashes came. Then I found that I was packed near Somerez and the eldest Miss Copley, with my own horse just in front of me. I recognized the eldest Miss Copley because she had a pagri round her helmet, and the younger had not. All the electricity in the air had gone into my body, and I was quivering and tingling from head to foot exactly as a corn shoots and tingles before rain. It was a grand storm. The wind seemed to be picking up the earth and pitching it to leeward in great heaps, and the heat beat up from the ground like the heat of the day of judgment. 
The storm lulled slightly after the first half-hour, and I heard a despairing little voice close to my ear, saying to itself quietly and softly, as if some lost soul were flying about with the wind, "'Oh, my God!' Then the younger Miss Copley stumbled into my arms, saying, "'Where is my horse? Get my horse. I want to go home. I want to go home. Take me home!' I thought that the lightning and the black darkness had frightened her, so I said there was no danger, but she must wait till the storm blew over. She answered, "'It's not that! It's not that! I want to go home! Oh, take me away from here!' I said that she could not go till the light came, but I felt her brush past me and go away. It was too dark to see where. Then the whole sky was split open with one tremendous flash, as if the end of the world were coming, and all the women shrieked. Almost directly after this I felt a man's hand on my shoulder, and heard Summerus bellowing in my ear. Through the rattling of the trees and the howling of the wind, I did not catch his words at once, but at last I heard him say, "'I've proposed to the wrong one. What shall I do?' Summerus had no occasion to make this confidence to me. I was never a friend of his, nor am I now, but I fancy neither of us were ourselves just then. He was shaking as he stood, with excitement, and I was feeling queer all over with the electricity. I could not think of anything to say except, "'More fool you for proposing in a dust-storm. But I did not see how that would improve the mistake. Then he shouted, "'Where's Edith? Edith Copley!' Edith was the younger sister. I answered out of my astonishment, "'What do you want with her?' Would you believe it? For the next two minutes he and I were shouting at each other like maniacs. He vowed that it was the youngest sister he had meant to propose to all along, and I telling him till my throat was hoarse that he must have made a mistake. I can't account for this, except, again, by the fact that we were neither of us ourselves. Everything seemed to me like a bad dream, from the stamping of the horses in the darkness to Somerez telling me the story of his loving Edith Copley since the first. He was still clawing my shoulder and begging me to tell him where Edith Copley was, when another lull came, and he brought light with it, and we saw the dust-cloud forming on the plain in front of us, so we knew the worst was over. The moon was low down, and there was just the glimmer of the false dawn that comes about an hour before the real one, but the light was very faint, and the dun-cloud roared like a bull. I wondered where Edith Copley had gone, and, as I was wondering, I saw three things together. First Maud Copley's face come smiling out of the darkness, and move toward Somarez, who was standing by me. I heard the girl whisper, George, and slide her arm through the arm that was not clawing my shoulder. And I saw that look on her face, which only comes once or twice in a lifetime, when a woman is perfectly happy, and the air is full of trumpets and gorgeous-colored fire, and the earth turns into cloud because she loves and is loved. At the same time I saw Somarez's face, as he heard Maud Copley's voice, and fifty yards away from the clump of orange trees I saw a brown Holland habit getting upon a horse. It must have been my state of over-excitement that made me so quick to meddle with what did not concern me. Somerez was moving off to the habit, but I pushed him back and said, Stop here and explain. I'll fetch her back. And I ran out to get her my own horse. I had a perfectly unnecessary notion that everything must be done decently and in order, and that Somerez's first care was to wipe the happy look out of Maud Copley's face. All the time I was linking up the curb chain, I wondered how he'd do it. I canted after Edith Copley, thinking to bring her back slowly on some pretense or another, but she galloped away as soon as she saw me, and I was forced to ride after her in earnest. She called back over her shoulder, "'Go away! I'm going home! Oh, go away!' two or three times. But by business was to catch her first, 
and argue later, the ride just fitted in with the rest of the evil dream. The ground was very bad, and now and again we rushed through the whirling, choking dust devils in the skirts of the flying storm. There was a burning hot wind blowing that brought up a stench of stale brick kilns with it, and through the half-light and through the dust devils across the desolate plain flickered the brown holland habit on the grey horse. She headed for the station at first, then she wheeled round and set off for the river, through beds of burnt-down jungle grass, bad even to ride a pig over. In cold blood I should never have dreamed of going over such a country at night, but it seemed quite right and natural with the lightning crackling overhead and to reek like the smell of the pit in my nostrils. I rode and I shouted, and she bent forward and lashed her horse, and the aftermath of the dust-storm came up and caught us both and drove us downwind like pieces of paper. I don't know how far we rode, but the drumming of the horse-hoofs and the roar of the wind and the race of the faint blood-red moon through the yellow mist seemed to have gone on for years and years, and I was literally drenched with sweat from my helmet to my gaiters when the grey stumbled, recovered himself, and pulled up dead lame. My brute was used up altogether. Edith Copley was in a sad state, plastered with dust, her helmet off, and crying bitterly. "'Why can't you let me alone?' she said. I only wanted to get away and go home. Oh, please let me go. You have got to come back with me, Miss Copley. Somers has something to say to you. It was a foolish way of putting it, but I hardly knew Miss Copley, and though I was playing Providence at the cost of my horse, I could not tell her in as many words what Somers had told me. I thought he could do that better himself. All her pretense about being tired and wanting to go home broke down and she rocked herself to and fro in the saddle as she sobbed, and the hot wind blew her black hair to leeward. I'm not going to repeat what she said, because she was utterly unstrung. This, if you please, was the cynical Miss Copley. Here was I, almost an utter stranger to her, trying to tell her that Somerez loved her, and that she was to come back to hear him say so. I believe I made myself understood, for she gathered the grey together, and made him hobble somehow, and we set off for the tomb while the storm went thundering down to Umbala and a few big drops of warm rain fell. I found out that she had been standing close to Somerez when he proposed to her sister, and had wanted to go home and cry in peace as an English girl should. She dabbled her eyes with her pocket-handkerchief as we went along, and babbled to me out of sheer lightness of heart and hysteria. That was perfectly unnatural, and yet it seemed all right at the time and in the place. All the world was only the two Copley girls. Somerez and I, ringed in with the lightning in the dark, and the guidance of this misguided world seemed to lie in my hands. When we returned to the tomb in the deep dead stillness that followed the storm, the dawn was just breaking, and nobody had gone away. They were waiting for our return, Somerez most of all. His face was white and drawn. As Miss Copley and I limped up, he came forward to meet us, and when he helped her down from her saddle he kissed her before all the picnic. It was like a scene in a theatre, and the likeness was heightened by all the dust-white, ghostly-looking men and women under the orange-trees, clapping their hands as if they were watching a play at Somerah's choice. I never knew anything so un-English in my life. Lastly, Somerah said we must all go home, or the station would come out to look for us, and would I be good enough to ride home with Maud Copley? Nothing would give me greater pleasure, I said. So we formed up, six couples in all, and went back two by two, Somerez walking at the side of Edith Copley, who was riding his horse. 
The air was cleared, and a little by little as the sun rose I felt we were all dropping back again into ordinary men and women, and that the great pop picnic was a thing altogether apart and out of the world, never to happen again. It had gone with the dust storm and the tingle in the hot air. I felt tired and limp and a good deal ashamed of myself as I went in for a bath and some sleep. There's a woman's version of this story, but it will never be written unless, unless, of course, Maud Copley cares to try. End of Chapter 6 False Dawn By Rudyard Kipling Recorded by Mike Harris